Despite the injustice of the many attacks over President Donald Trump over the last eight years, the recent federal indictment seems to have placed him in significant legal jeopardy. On this week's episode 135 of the Liberty Cafe, I'm going to discuss with former federal prosecutor George Perry the, the trouble that Trump faces and possible scenarios under which the president might avoid being convicted. Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and, and welcome to uh, this week's edition of the Liberty Cafe. It's a blessing to have all of you with me here this week, as it is every week, or it's an us this week, and I'll get to that in just a second, because we love talking, I love talking with you about uh, just uh, the, this battle between liberty and oppression in the world, and, and, and it's a great, I'm glad that you could join in with us this week. Also grateful to our uh, sponsor, the Texas Scorecard. Uh, I'd really highly recommend you go over to texasscorecard.com and find out what they're talking about, the fight for liberty. It's focused a lot here on Texas, but the, the principles we learn about the fight here in Texas for liberty, you know, a lot of people think Texas is this great conservative state and everything is perfect here, but that's not exactly the case. So go on over to texasscorecard.com and learn about what they're writing and telling us and teaching us about the fight for liberty here in Texas. Well, I'm really uh, pleased uh, this week to have George Perry with me on the show, I'll, and I'll get to him in just a second. I want to tell you a little bit about him. He is a, a former federal and state prosecutor and did that for quite some time. He's also been in private practice in Philadelphia for many years, and uh, he uh, he blogs on Knowledge is Good, but also writes articles in, in many uh, outlets, including the American Spectator. And I, I first, I think I first ran across uh, Mr. Perry when he ran, wrote an article called Who Killed George Floyd? As we all know, that was a very, um, that was a deeply emotional issue for, for America, no matter where you came down on that. And, and I just found this piece out there that was uh, just was able to go acknowledge all those things that are going on out there, but just go into the facts and, and look at the facts of Mr. Floyd's death and, and how it occurred. And and if you haven't read this piece, I would highly recommend you go over the, and, and look at that and and really get some some insight into how George Floyd died. And um, uh, e even though that may not uh, go along with some of the things that uh, even juries have said about how George Floyd died, it's well worth reading. So anyway, uh, I, I found in that uh, uh, man here, George Perry, who, who's willing to go in and look at the facts and then explain them to us in a way we can all understand and kind of get us past all the emotional and, and, and rhetoric and, and all the exaggerations that we find going on out there and nowhere or today, at least, are we finding more uh, of that kind of thing than we are about the indictment of Donald Trump. And so I'm, gonna, I'm glad to have George Perry on to discuss that w with us. Welcome, George. Well, thank you. Glad to be with you. All right. So um, you have uh, you've written one piece about this as you've been doing your re legal research and and so I'd like to just start us off by kind of talking about that. And, and maybe you could explain to, to me and everybody else around here 
who is Joe McGinnis and why does that have anything to do with Donald Trump and his indictment? Okay, well, Joe McGinnis was a member of the Irish Volunteers who participated in the 1916 Easter Rising against the British. Um, and when the Rising was defeated, um, he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 10 years at penal servitude in an English prison. And in 1917, while he was still an inmate, the uh, Sinn Féin, which is the, the revolutionary party in Ireland, uh, nominated him to be a candidate for parliament. And his campaign slogan was put him in to get him out, because if he was elected to parliament, he would have to be released from prison. And so he won the election by 37 votes, and he was released from prison. But instead of taking his seat in the House of Parliament, because he was a committed Irish nationalist plus a traditional Irish hardhead, he elected instead to serve in Ireland's equivalent of uh, Congress, which was had just been formed, and it was still a revolutionary council, basically, but he got elected and that got him out of prison. And when I first heard of the federal indictment of Donald Trump, it occurred to me that if Trump was to be reelected president, he could pardon himself on the federal charges. So I suggested in my article that Trump's campaign slogan could be uh, vote him in to keep him out of prison. <laughs> So that's the connection between Joe McGinnis, the the Irish volunteer, and Donald Trump. Yeah, that, that makes me wonder about um, you know the the speed of justice in our country because typically it seems um, you know you talk about January sixth um, people and and others uh, the justice seems to be moving rather slowly on, on that accord. Uh, do, you, do you have an opinion uh, before we get down to the, the just the, the legal issues about the indictment? Do you have any opinion on how quickly this process might move along for Donald Trump? Do they want to get him indicted and convicted and in jail really quickly? Or are they happy to have this go out during the um, presidential election? Keep on well, continuing the, on into the election. The prosecutor wants this case to be disposed of quickly. Um, and Trump's people obviously do not. And just looking at all of the various issues and the, the procedural posture of the case, I think that uh, there's an excellent chance that this case will not be disposed of uh, before the 2024 election. So okay. um, that's that's just my guess. I'm, it, it seems to me we're dealing with with a bunch of very thorny legal issues here, some of which are unprecedented, given the fact that this is the first former president of the United States ever to be indicted by the federal government. Uh, and so I think we've got a long ways to go before this case goes to trial. All right. So let's 
dig down into the issues a little bit. You wrote in your last piece that you were still researching uh, Trump's legal defenses, and there was more on that to come. Have you gotten to the point where you can start talking about some of the legal details <clears throat> in the indictment and his defenses and those types of things? Well, yeah, I've, I've reached some conclusions, and, and unfortunately, uh, they're not all good for Trump. Um, it, it breaks down in, into two areas. One is, was President Trump lawfully in possession of the documents that were subpoenaed? And the other is, did he take appropriate measures to contest the uh, government's claim that he had to return those documents? Uh, the first issue having to do with whether he was lawfully in possession, there's an argument being circulated under the Presidential Records Act, um, and, and Trump was told to assert this argument by the people at Judicial Watch because they had had experience with it, uh, to the effect that whatever records Trump deemed to be personal records were his and he didn't have to... Uh, return them to the government. I don't think that's a very persuasive argument at all. There may be an argument under the Constitution, that is Article 2 of the Constitution, which vests all executive power in the president. And so under the Constitution, Trump may have a legal basis for having uh, obtained the documents whether or not his retention of them was, was legal, I think, is problematic. The real issue, though, and the main event, and where I think he is in trouble, is that the records were subpoenaed by a grand jury. And if he did not want to comply with that subpoena, then his legal remedy was to move to quash the subpoena. And they didn't do that. He and his lawyers did not do that. Um, instead, if the, if the indictment is true, and that remains to be seen whether or not the indictment is, is correct and true, um, but according to the indictment, instead of following a legal path to oppose the subpoena, Trump engaged in... Uh, a subterfuge to hide the documents and to lie to the government and so forth and so on. And if, if that's true, if they can prove that, then yeah, he's, he's in serious trouble. Um, but like I say, the indictment is merely an accusation and it remains to be seen what the evidence will support. So, so one of the questions, I think, at least in my mind, but perhaps in a lot of other people, is uh, kind of comes from, you know, this is, does not, this indictment is not in isolation, right? It's like yeah. I, I talk to my um, students, I teach a government class in high school and, and say so we, we really can't start looking at the Constitution in 1789, right? The, the foundations for the Constitution come well, I mean, thousands of years even before that. And, um, and so I think the same thing applies to this, this indictment. Um, and I, and I want to get back to the, the, the legal problems of, um, uh, President Trump, but 
but how, how do you, I mean, how do we look at this framing this, this indictment in the last seven years, right? That the, they, from 2016, maybe even a little before they've been after president Trump, uh, how do we, how do we, I know, you know, selective prosecution doesn't usually help the person who's being selectively prosecuted, but mm-hmm. they've been after Trump for a long time. How are we as just citizens supposed to look at this from a perspective? Should they have been coming after Trump in the first place? Well, you remember the old story about the boy who cried wolf? Right. Well, ever since Trump announced his run for the presidency, when he came down the escalator in Trump Tower back in 2015, 2016, whenever it was, uh, the government's been after him. I right. mean, the, and it started with a campaign dirty trick by the Hillary Clinton campaign, where they, out of whole cloth, manufactured the story that Trump was a Russian asset. And the FBI, under the leadership of James Comey, had, they knew, by the way, that it was a Clinton campaign dirty trick. But they proceeded to investigate Trump and to smear him and to hamstring his administration, even after he was elected, by pursuing their Operation Crossfire Hurricane, which was... They were looking for evidence that Trump was a Russian asset. And they came up with no evidence to support that. But it still led to the investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller, who carried on the mission of smearing Trump by running that investigation. That turned up no evidence. And then we get down to two. In impeachments by the Democrats, neither one of which had any basis in fact or law. And then we come down to the present day where he gets indicted in New York on absolutely specious charges by the Soros-funded prosecutor in Manhattan. He's under investigation for uh, in by another Soros prosecutor down in Atlanta, my old hometown, um, for purportedly election interference in the, the Georgia election, because after the election was over, Trump, the defeated candidate, actually spoke to the Secretary of State to protest how the election <laughs> was conducted. And he said, he allegedly said, look, I'm looking for 10,000 votes because that was the margin of, of victory. And now we got this prosecutor down in Atlanta saying, oh, that's very serious, very serious. You know, So you've had one failed and bogus investigation, impeachment and criminal charge after the other. And now comes this federal indictment, which unlike everything that's gone on before, it seems to me that they may may actually have something to work with from the standpoint of a legitimate prosecution. Although you, you, you have to wonder, would they have done this to any other former president? Um, 
has Trump been singled out for special treatment? The the big problem that I see, uh, though, is that Trump did have a a very straightforward remedy once the they issued the subpoena for these records. As I said before, he should have moved to quash the subpoena. And then this whole thing could have been worked out in court. And if the court decided against him, okay, they decide against him. If they found in his favor, great, they found in his favor. Um, and hell, he could have he could have strung that out, <laughs> that litigation, he could have strung out into 2030. Uh, but he didn't do that. And that's where I think he went wrong. Uh, and, and Bill Barr, the former attorney general under Trump, whom I've met and, and I think is a very capable guy. I don't agree with him on everything. I mean, he Barr said that there was no evidence of election fraud in 2020. And I think that's absolutely wrong. I think there is abundant evidence of election fraud. But anyhow, right. Barr, Barr has said, and he's come out with an article within the last couple of days saying that Trump's refusal to comply with a subpoena and to just return the records um, is indicative of his kind of reckless behavior. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big Trump fan, but yeah, the, <laughs> the guy does engage in, in reckless behavior, at least under these circumstances. And I think that... Uh, you know, it, it, it the the problem is, it's a self-inflicted wound. If this indictment is in any way, shape, or form true, any part of it, it would ha you'd have to chalk it up to being a self-inflicted wound. This is something that Trump could have avoided. And uh, as uh, John Hinderocker from Powerline has said many times, another person I greatly admire. Right. He, said he just can't figure out why Trump didn't just give the records back and be done with it. But he didn't. And here we are. Yeah. So uh, that that gets us. Well, there, there's a lot of places to go from that, but it's it still gets back to the one discussion. And I, I'm not trying to justify what Trump has done mm -hmm. since the subpoena. But was was there any. You know, so you, you go back to Scooter Libby or anybody else, right? They, yeah. they, you know, Scooter Libby didn't do anything wrong, right? Right. You know, they, they came and investigated him for, and he didn't do anything wrong. But then they got him for lying to the FBI. Now it's questionable whether or not, in fact, he lied to the FBI. But yeah, there was didn't. a problem with in the first place. The the federal government likes to come get you, not because there's like Martha. Uh, whatever her name was, the, the famous Martha Stewart, right? Martha. Yeah, yeah. No, right. You know, yeah. yeah she, she didn't do anything wrong either, except maybe lie about what she'd done, which wasn't illegal in the first place. So if you put that in the context of Trump, was there any rationale from a, a legal national security perspective or anything else for them coming after Trump in the first place? You know, I, I I have to say, if you put it all into context, I can't see them doing this to any other former president. Um, but in terms of their their true motivation, I mean, Bill Barr, for example, says the government was very patient. They tried to work it out for over a year's time, and Trump just wouldn't do it. Um, here's here's the. Here's the problem. When you put this whole thing into context, 
Um, and I worked, you know, I, I was I was a federal prosecutor for many years. I worked for years with the FBI when I was both a federal and state prosecutor. I have a lot of friends who are retired FBI agents. Uh, I don't trust the government. Yeah. And I could see Trump, after everything he's been through, and they come after him once again, I could see him thinking, you know, if this is what they want, I don't want to give it to them. And one of the things that was kind of interesting was there there was a quotation from a conversation that he had with, with someone. It's recited in the indictment where he's talking about, and they changed, they changed the language to show country A and individual B. Well, what it related to was a war plan for an attack on Iran that had been prepared by General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And Milley had told the press that he, Milley, was the one who kept Trump from attacking Iran. So Milley's the hero, Trump's the heavy. And so Trump, in this quotation in the indictment is saying, look, here's the plan that I got from Milley. He was the one that wanted to attack Iran and I had to stop him. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, well, you know, it, it, I could understand why Trump would want to hang on to something like that because the man's been constantly under attack. And if they wanted to smear him, once again with, you know, Trump, the mad dog who wanted to attack Iran, and here he's got documentary proof, I could see why he wouldn't want to give that up. Um, so it's, it's not an entirely reckless approach that Trump took. But as I said before, the way to deal with it would be to uh, move to quash the subpoena. And frankly, in the motion to quash, if he wanted to quote that report from Milley, attach it as a as an exhibit, that'd become part of the court record, and it would be out there for the whole world to see. But that's I think that when I read that, I thought, well, wait a minute, I I kind of understand what where the guy is coming from, because Lord knows they've been trying to do him in ever since he ever since he ran for president the first time. So. It's not entirely irrational on his part to want to hang on to this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think you pointed out well, when you pointed out about not trusting the government. I think that's one of the problems I see out there in a lot of the commentary on this, and even even from the conservative side, like you know mm -hmm. Andrew McCarthy. I mean, he's a brilliant man, great mm -hmm. federal prosecutor, and has done a lot of good things for our country. But somewhere deep down in his soul or his gut. He trusts the government. He trusts the FBI. He trusts the Justice Department. And yeah. I mean, it, it took him a while to undo that when it came to the, the the investigation of Russiagate. But then once that was over, he's kind of back to that. And so it, it's just hard for us in the public, I think, sometimes to, to trust the commentary we're getting on this because we get a lot of stuff from both sides that are just saying it's all about Trump and his faults rather than trying yeah. to look at some of the faults of the, the federal government and what they're doing, whether it's to Trump or any, anyone else. 
Well, look at what they did to General Michael Flynn, Trump's national security advisor. That was a straight out frame up. They sent those two agents, one of whom was uh, Peter Strzok, I believe, who was high up in the FBI. Comey sent, sent those two guys over to the White House to have a friendly conversation with Flynn. And they were asking him questions about contacts with Russia. And, and Flynn basically said, you know, I just, you know, I, I know I talked to, to one guy. I don't know about, you know, other conversations, but you guys must have the records of all the, all the uh, communications back and forth. And they said, okay, that's it. He lied to us. And they ruined his life. Yeah. And, you know, you, 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 that's only one example. And it used to be when I was in private practice, if the FBI called on a client of mine and I, I would, you know, I could talk to the FBI and find out what it is they wanted, I invariably would recommend, as long as they weren't looking to put my client in prison, I would recommend strongly that they cooperate with the FBI. Those days are over. I mean, if an FBI agent shows up at your front door, you got to ask, well, is he a Democrat or is he a Republican? (laughs) Who sent him here? Why is he here? And it's just not safe to talk to them. I mean, they, they could do it to Flynn. They're doing it to Trump. They could do it to you. The other thing is, um, just so, just in case anybody considers this to be legal advice, if if any if they come to question you, don't say I'm not talking, because that in and of itself can be interpreted as something by the FBI. What you say is, well, gee, I, I've got to talk to my lawyer first, and then go get a lawyer uh, and let the lawyer do the talking. But these are, as I said in my article about this. Um, in, in days gone by, if a candidate was charged, arrested by the federal government, that would be the end of his candidacy. Over and out, done. Those days are over. A good solid swath of this country no longer believes the federal establishment They don't trust it. They don't trust the Department of Justice, my former employer. They don't trust the FBI. And so I think that we're in we're in uncharted waters now with the Trump prosecution. And we are certainly at a time when the FBI and the Department of Justice are no longer held in the high esteem that they once were. They're political operatives now. They're the police force for the Democrat Party and the Biden regime. Yeah, unfortunately, that appears to be the case. Well, I think that puts us in a position to, to think about. So, what, what's the path forward here? I mean, what, what, the legal steps. The what? What can we expect over the next few months in this battle back and forth between Trump and the Department of Justice? Well, I would expect Trump's people to um, move to dismiss the uh, the indictment, and other motions would have to do with the order compelling Trump's lawyers to testify. Um, The allegation was made by the government before a judge in Washington, not the judge down in Florida where all of this 
took place, but they they made a motion to require the the government did to make Trump's lawyer testify to matters discussed with his client. Now that would be covered by the attorney-client privilege, but there is under the law something called the crime fraud exception. If a client comes to you and seeks advice about how he can violate the law in the future, then that's not covered by the attorney-client privilege. Um, and there, there are two things about that. And the, you know, the court said, yeah, this is crime fraud exception. Mr. Attorney, you've got to testify. Well, I've, I've read the indictment and the things that Trump said that were supposedly the crime, fit within the crime fraud exception. What I got out of it was he was a client asking an attorney about, well, what are the different alternatives here? What if this happened? What if that happened? He didn't say, hey, Joe, you know, I want you to, you know, I want you to help me hide these records or, you know, obstruct justice or whatever. I, I don't think the conversations, at least to the extent they're recited in the indictment, uh, necessarily establish a crime fraud exception. The other point I'd like to make is these Washington attorneys who he, he's had representing him, um, they really need to man up. I mean, if it, some judge told me I was going to have to testify against my client, I just say, put me in jail, judge. I'm not talking because the attorney-client privilege is that important. If people can't come to their attorneys and have a conversation and seek advice and guidance under the protection of the attorney-client privilege, then we're in serious trouble. Yeah. And I, I was flabbergasted that the, the one attorney in particular who just rolled over. You know, once the judge said, all right, crime fraud exception, you have to testify. That's the point at which I think an attorney has to say, I'm not doing it, judge. And if the judge says, well, I'm going to put you in jail, then you say, you do what you got to do, but I'm not I'm not going to violate my client's confidences. I'm not going to disclose what he said to me. Um, that didn't happen. And I think that's, I'll, I'll just say that's very unfortunate. It's not, yeah. certainly not the way I would have handled it. And trust me, as a prosecutor, I was locked up for contempt by a judge. It's not pleasant, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Right. Because judges aren't always right. Yeah. Well, if, if that, uh, the evidence gathered from the exception to the attorney-client privilege is thrown out somewhere, would that assist, would that help? Trump overcome? Oh, some of I think problems. it would help him a lot. I think a lot of what's in the indictment is based on what that attorney disclosed. And if that gets tossed out, then what's the government going to do? Um, so it, I think that would be an important step, and I'm sure that they're going to litigate that issue. Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting. The judge that's handling the case down in Florida was appointed by Donald Trump. And in right. previous litigation, um, you know, the, the news media is all over by saying, oh, yeah, in a previous litigation connected to this case, she ruled in Trump's favor. Therefore, this is a put up job. And, you know, she's just a Trumpy and all of this. I think she's a very good judge. And she's going to be on, she's going to be on the hot seat. But if she stays in the case and she would be the one to decide whether she was going to recuse herself. 
And I don't think they have any, the government has enough evidence to get her knocked out of the case. Um, you know, that might be the first break Trump has, has caught. That plus the fact that the jury would be picked from the Southern District of Florida as opposed to a Washington, D.C. jury, which exactly you know, 97% of the people in the District of Columbia voted against Trump. Because, well, of course, Trump's mission as president was to dismantle the federal government. So he's got a lot of enemies in a place like that. Same in New York, you know, in Manhattan. He couldn't get a fair trial there, couldn't get a fair jury. But he has a, he has a, a fair chance of getting a fair and impartial jury in the Southern District of Florida. So between the judge getting who has been assigned to the case and the venue where they would pick the jury – Trump's caught some major breaks there. Yeah. Well, let me just finish up with, with this question um, about jury nullification. Right? Mm -hmm. you, you've been on the other side of, uh, of this and as well as defense counsel. And I, I know today jury nullification is not looked at very well from our, our legal establishment. Establishment, but it seems to have a pretty long history behind that, where where jurors look more at the fairness and the rightness of what's going on rather than necessarily what the technical details of the law have. Do, do you see that maybe coming into play here in in the Trump case? I think you could see uh, jury nullification to the extent that you would get a hung jury out of this, right? And um, I think that, you know, jury nullification happens all the time. I mean, you can have all the facts, all the evidence and all the law on your side. And I've seen it time and again. Jury just looks at it and says, yeah, well, not today. And they don't they don't go along with the prosecution. I mean, I can give you an example going way back in time. I. Don't ask me why this happened, but I was assigned by the Justice Department to to uh, indict and try a bunch of bookmakers. They were mo mob-connected bookmakers. Excuse me, I kill this off. Um, and we put on all the evidence. We had them on a wiretap. We had everything, and the jury came back not guilty. When I was talking to him afterwards, they said, this was in New York State, they said, we got off an off-track betting parlor right across the street from the courthouse. Everybody gambles. What's the big deal? And, and I was thinking to myself, I agree. What is the big deal? But those were my marching orders. So I've seen jury nullification up close. And if people think that Whatever the evidence that the government has about Trump, if they think this was done for political purposes, they could very well say, well, that's all very interesting, Mr. Prosecutor, but not guilty. We're not going along with this because what's happening here is you're trying to disqualify the leading political opponent of the regime that's in power. And that stinks to high heaven. We want nothing to do with it. And you're not going to get a conviction out of us. Now, can you get a whole jury to go along with that? No, but I think you could get enough jurors 
to hang that jury. And, uh, you know, however many people would vote against conviction, I have no idea, but I think there would be enough there for some holdouts on that jury to uh, come back hung. Well, good. Well, Ms. Perry, thank you so much for, for being with us today. Really appreciate you coming on here and bringing your uh, insightful analysis to the Trump case. Well, so happy to be with you. Thank you. And thank you also to y'all for listening in and to our sponsor of the Liberty Cafe, Texas Scorecard. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.